Hey, tonight's reading is from Mark um, chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. And it is the healing of a demon-possessed man. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, For we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, guys, if we haven't met before, my name is Stuart. I'm one of the uh, apprentices here at the church. Um, I know it's really, really tempting um, at the moment to not bother like looking at a Bible and you can get distracted on your phone and stuff. Try to keep the Bible in front of you tonight uh, to keep looking down at this past. It's probably not one you're too familiar with um, because it's so... Um, well, it strikes us a bit odd, doesn't it? Um, the reason we're uh, taking a wee uh, break from the Book of Acts, the series we've been working through this summer, is because we're going to be starting... Uh, oh, look at that, oh my goodness. Um, we're going to be starting a new series. Um, so we're just taking a wee one-off. Um, and the reason I've chosen this passage for us to look at uh, is because it's one of my favourites. Uh, really important to me. It gave me a lot of hope uh, during a period where I felt pretty hopeless. Um, so I hope you feel about the same by the end. I hope you see the glory of Jesus uh, by the end. But before we begin, uh, before we begin, Let's pray together, please. 
Heavenly Father, we need you now to open our eyes and our hearts to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guys, if you've been getting to know me over the past couple of years, you'll know that I'm a, a pretty big uh, movie buff. I enjoy uh, a good movie. So you'd figure um, I'd enjoy any kind of good movie. But there's a particular kind of film, a particular kind of a story that I absolutely despise, no matter how good it is, no matter how uh, accl- critically acclaimed it is. And those are classic horror movies, movies like uh, Dracula or Frankenstein or The Exorcism, which is kind of pertinent for our passage, isn't it? The reason I don't enjoy them is because they are so good at uh, accomplishing what they set out to do. The directors really hit the nail on the head. What they're going after is they're trying to show us human suffering and evil, and they do it. They hit the nail on the head. I feel every scene of affliction and torture um, or suffering that's on the screen, so I hate it. It all feels too real for me, um, which makes it terrifying, revolting, also really memorable, which you don't really want. In today's passage, in Mark chapter 5, we're given the account of a real-life horror story. There's a man tormented by evil spirits. There's a graveyard, lots of strange happenings, lots of suffering, all of which is beyond human control um, and uh, any kind of human resistance. It has all the right ingredients for a proper horror. But the reason I love it and not hate it, like the movies, is because it's right here in the Bible for you and for me to give us rock solid hope and confidence for whenever we're faced with that real evil. Mark 5 shows us someone who's capable of rescuing anyone from their horror story, no matter how dark it gets. This passage shows us that there's a hope even for those who are legitimately hopeless in Jesus. And it's Jesus, it's Jesus is that hope because this passage shows us that he is our fearsome divine warrior who has total authority over our enemies. And he came into this world delighting to defeat those enemies, to liberate us, even though we don't deserve it. He is our fearsome divine warrior. He's got total authority over our enemies. And he came into this world delighting to defeat those enemies, to liberate us, to set us free, even though we don't deserve it. Mark's Gospel, I'm sure you're pretty familiar with Mark's Gospel, most of you. It's a really short book. It's got a really clear purpose. Mark wants to tell us who Jesus is and what he came to do. And this passage, um, the passage that comes just before this passage that we've just read, is a really, really famous one. It's Jesus calming uh, the storm while he's in the boat. What's super clear from that wee passage of scripture that we all probably know from like Sunday school or school whenever we're really young or something, what's super clear in that passage is that the disciples don't cover themselves in a lot of glory. They don't really get who Jesus is or why he came. They're not really grasping much about him at this point. Um, And that's why that passage closes with a question. Jesus asks a question to the disciples at the end. And actually, if we're paying close attention to the Bible, he's asking us the exact same question. So if you've got a Bible open, look at chapter 4 and verse 40 of Mark's gospel. Jesus asked the disciples this question. Have you still no faith? As in, don't you get it by now? Don't you know who I am? So that's the question which tees up our passage this uh, this, this evening. Have you still no faith? The disciples have been around Jesus for a while now. They've seen firsthand miracle upon miracle upon miracle. They have heard Jesus' incredible preaching. And they still don't get it. They still don't understand who he is or what he's come to do. 
So it must be really easy for us, you know, as readers at this point. We've been told from the beginning of Mark's gospel exactly what's going on. For us to roll our eyes, that would be really, really easy. But actually, the Bible teaches us that you can't see who Jesus really is. You can't understand who Jesus is or what he came to do unless God himself gives you the ability to understand, the ability to see who Jesus is. You can grasp it up here, even, like you can go and get a theology degree, but you you might not necessarily understand it here in your heart and in the core of your being. You may not understand the urgent relevance of Jesus, even for you and what he accomplished in his life. So here's the test for you tonight to see whether or not you've started to understand a part of the immensity of Jesus and his mission. And that is, if Jesus is just another ornament on the shelf of your life, rather than the actual, the whole, the whole point of your life, the whole focal point, if Jesus doesn't dominate your life, then it's worth slowing down tonight and asking yourself the question, do I, do I get what Christianity is all about? That's the question the Bible's asking us tonight. So hopefully you'll see by the end um, of this sermon that Jesus is worth trusting. He's worth your absolute confidence and he is worth your love. That's what I got from this passage years ago. So the disciples moved from seeing Jesus calm one storm to calming another storm in chapter five and verse one, if you look at it with me. The second storm is inside a man. It's within him. He has what's called an impure spirit literally meaning an evil spirit. It's morally corrupt. And this man rushes down toward Jesus as soon as Jesus sets foot on the shore. So as we focus in a bit more on this man, the first point that's jumping out of this passage that we need to learn from God's word is that Satan enslaves mankind. That's from verses two to five. Satan enslaves mankind. Now that might feel really simple to you, especially if you've been to church for a long time. You may feel like, oh my goodness, okay, this is gonna be one of these simple sermons, Stuart. Not gonna, not gonna learn much here. But then why is it that every single one of us are so casual about our sin, so nonchalant about our sin? When most of us sin, it doesn't even come up on our radar. That's how how desperately we need to learn this lesson constantly. So there's, there's just no danger in us being too familiar with this. Jesus says elsewhere in the Bible, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So we've got to wake up and we've got to realize the seriousness of the situation and not just I'm in, not just that you're in, but the whole world, every human by default is in. Sin is satanic. When you sin, you are raising up a flag in support of Satan. But the helpful thing about the first few verses of this passage is that it lays bare for us the end goal of Satan and the dead end of sin. It makes it as plain as day. Have a look at verses two to five with me. Verses two to five are a miserable picture. It's a living hell. This man's living in the tombs, as you can see from verses two and three. Dead people are the only ones who can put up with him because they can't be terrified of him. They can't complain. Verses three to four suggest to us that society had reached the point of absolute hopelessness for this man because they were helpless to do anything to help him. He was only a source of danger to himself and to others at this point. That's why they strapped him up in chains well out of the way. These graves that he's living in, they are caves which are cut into the side of cliffs. This is not a place to go for a picnic. It is not the North Antrim coast. This is a horror story. This is not somewhere you would want to be. 
Verse 5 shows us that he was left to himself to howl into the night. He used to cut himself with stones as an effort to kind of relieve himself from the demons. All the while, they're just sitting taking more and more pleasure from his helplessness against them. It's just a vicious circle. Every effort that he made to save himself made it worse for himself. The demons weren't leaving. He was bringing further physical calamity to himself, and he was totally alone. His friends, his neighbors, his country had deserted him. Whatever gods that he worshipped, they weren't helping him. This was a Gentile region, so there were lots of pagan gods that were followed in this area. Whatever one he followed, it did not help him. But it wasn't just a little demon problem he had. It wasn't just like, oh, he's filled up 20% by demons, but the rest of the time he's grand, he gets a bit of respite, they just come out at night. It wasn't like that at all. Mark's suggesting to us here that they had nearly total control over him. The supernatural strength that he shows in verses three and four, enough to like break chains off his wrists and off his ankles, or resist anyone who tried to tackle him, that meant that the demons had total reign to drive this man wherever they wanted to do whatever they wanted with him. Nothing was able to stop them. Even the name Legion, look at verse 9 with me, the, the demons call themselves Legion for we are many. That's meant to scream to us, and the people would have understood back then, total dominance. This was, a, this was a country, this was a land that was occupied by a formidable Roman empire. The Romans were the overlords. So to see a legion of Roman soldiers coming near you or just standing off in the distance, that was terrifying. These were 3,000 to 6,000 men armed to the teeth, and they were there to keep you in check to make sure you're doing what they want. So this gives a really clear picture of the extent of the man's problem, doesn't it? There's no tricks here. The supernatural strength of this demoniac is not an illusion. This is not Darren Brown on Channel 4. This is not lockpicking that he's doing whenever he breaks free. He was filled with the forces of hell, and they loved to make a show of their strength to terrify the people around them and to destroy the man that they had in their clutches. They'd set themselves up as Lord, as king over this man, and they'd made his soul like a, a playground. They'd made his soul a paradise for themselves. So that looked like pain, terror, torture, wildness, isolation, hopelessness, darkness. That's the end of the path in following Satan. I said this is really helpful. This is a helpful few verses for us because it shows us, it, it makes plain to us the way of Satan. That's why it's here in the Bible because actually most of the time, Satan's work doesn't look like this man. Most of the time, people look very, very, very happy following Satan. The vast majority of non-Christians we know are not living in a graveyard. They are not possessed by an unclean spirit. They insist they're free, free to do as they please, independent of any God or his claim in their life. They are the captain of their own destinies. They feel like, oh, I get to go wherever I want, do whatever I want. I don't answer to anyone. It all sounds fantastic on the face of it. Until you consider one thing. The Bible teaches us that the primary way that we can spot the work of Satan in this world is not a ghoul in a graveyard or a haunted house or a particularly strange fellow who talks to himself. It's wherever Jesus is rejected. You may have read this passage before and thought, ah, oh, this is irrelevant to me. I can't really learn too much from this in my Bible study. Move on to the next passage. But God's word makes clear that Satan's primary work is unbelief. If you've got a Bible, you flick with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. 
If you haven't got a Bible, don't worry about it. I'll read it out for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Really helpful in explaining this to us. From verse 3 it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, notice the small g there, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan's primary work is unbelief. It's to stop people from seeing the gospel, seeing the glory of Jesus, seeing their need for the gospel, seeing its urgent relevance for them. You can actually, in our proper passage, Mark chapter 5, flick back there with me, you can actually see the typical work of Satan, just the -the run-of-the-mill work of Satan later on in the passage down in verse 17. So look at chapter 5 and verse 17 with me in Mark to see the reaction of the local residents. They beg Jesus to leave the area after seeing that he'd rescued this man. They rejected him. And it's not a casual rejection. They weren't indifferent about it. They begged him to leave. That is the work of Satan. That is madness. They are turning down the one person who is powerful enough and loving enough to liberate them. These people were happy with their comfortable wee lives, doing whatever they wanted, free to believe, whatever they wanted, whatever suited them, whenever, getting comfortable, making some money. That was it for them. Absolute madness. So the world may seem free on the face of it, but it's only going where the small g God, the small g God of this world wants it to, and that is not into life. He has come only to steal and kill and destroy our lives, just as he's done to this demoniac, to this poor man. This unbelieving world is just a puppet dancing on strings, and it is Satan who's making it its toy. So that's the man and the locals stuck in this hopeless state. They are beyond all human help. They're resistant to the Lord. They're enslaved to Satan. They're heading for an eternity that looks a little like what this man's experienced. The three great enemies of all humans, Satan, sin, and death, all of them were winning out against this man. All of them were winning out against these people. And it wasn't a close contest. And the exact same is true of every single person who's ever lived. That's the dire situation that this world's in. That's why being here is urgent. There is good news, though. You'll be happy to hear. There is a hope, even for the genuinely hopeless. Here's the kind of movie I love. You know, like whenever you can't fall asleep and you, you flick on film four or something, and there's always like some cheap action movie that's blasting away? Old Vietnam prisoner of war movies, I love them. Some of them are really phenomenal, like they're not all as cheesy as Rambo, although Rambo's pretty good actually, I quite like him. Um, For me, these are so good because they really, really capture what it must have been like to go through that hopeless experience of being a prisoner of war, to never expect to experience freedom again, trapped in a life of misery, a life of poverty, intense heat, you know, in the jungles of Vietnam, being tortured, bugs everywhere, not knowing if any day was going to be your last. And then, at some point in the movie, most of them are based off true stories, so it's pretty cool. And then there's this awesome moment when you hear the helicopters passing overhead, gunfire breaks out, they see the ropes drop down into the camp, and they realize, oh my gosh, I've not been forgotten. Someone, somewhere, 
kept a record of my name and the fact that I'm missing. And they had a meeting, and my name came up on a piece of paper. Someone said something, and they organized themselves. They gathered together all their strength, and they decided to risk their own lives to come after me. That's a really cool movie. I think that's fantastic. Super cheap, super cheesy, but fantastic. The weak and the oppressed not being left to their fate, but being rescued by those who cared and who were strong enough to go and help. So they got into the thick of the fight for the good of others. That's awesome. And that's just what's going on here too in our passage. That's the good news. In just the same way, Jesus is our liberator. He thinks of us and he comes down even when we're enslaved and actually taking the side of our oppressors. We are so duped that we take the side of Satan against Jesus. But whenever we didn't give a thought to him, he gave a thought to us. Humans are just willful slaves. We are walking hook, line, and sinker into eternal death, and he thought of us. He exerted his fearful, infinite power and authority to come down after this man and for you if you're a Christian. The exact same thing he did for you if you're a Christian. He dropped into the middle of the warfare. He didn't avoid the action. He wasn't too good for it, and he obliterated our enemies. He has obliterated sin, Satan, and death. That's what Jesus has done, all out of a massive, undeserved love for people who have trampled all over his name. So that's our second major point from this passage. Jesus liberates and restores us. That's verses 6 to 13. Jesus liberates and restores us. Verse 6 tells us that this demoniac, demoniac came flying down the cliff toward the shoreline. And you have to notice the sudden change in tone about this demon-possessed man. The demons are speaking from within the man in verses 7 to 10. But for all their dominance inside that man and in that region, they trembled before Jesus. What could make them tremble? Because they know his identity. They know his authority and his purpose. The demons dropped to their knees and they screeched out. Verse 7, have a look at it. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. I think we all tend to have a really, really tame picture in our heads of what Jesus is like. We all drift toward this picture of Jesus, and he's not actually out there. That Jesus isn't out there. Um, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 63. It's in the Old Testament. If you haven't got it or you don't know where to find it, don't worry, I'll read it for us. But we're going to read six verses from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 to 6. Isaiah chapter 63 is a dialogue between Jesus and I think Isaiah. This is Jesus when he comes back again in the future. He's going to wrap up history again whenever he comes back. And this is maybe going to shake up some of us. Let's read it together. Isaiah 63, 1 to 6. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. 
for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That's the terrifying picture of Jesus that is still to come in the future. And the demons knew that very well. That is what they're sitting thinking of when they beg Jesus not to torture them. They know that that moment's coming. They know that's the power of Jesus and that he is fierce against evil. They know better than the disciples do at this point, And maybe they know better than us, if that's shocking to us. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 in the New Testament tells us, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the, work, the devil's work. The disciples, they still hadn't grasped who Jesus was when he calmed the storm. They were left shaken and asking each other, who is this that the wind and the sea obey? Well, this passage is asking us, who is this that a formidable legion of demons begs for mercy from? He is the authoritative, all-powerful Son of God, and He is our liberator. All of creation bows to His will. If there is any doubt in your head or in your heart about who Jesus is or what He came to do, just sit in this passage and think about the evidence that's here. The demons know His identity, and He is their greatest fear. Look at verse 7. They know that He's going to be the one to cast them into hell forever. He's going to be the one to do that. Evil is no match for Jesus. What a huge comfort for us Christians that we've got this fearsome, all-powerful warrior on our side because he's brought us over onto his side, not because we deserve it, but because he's chosen to have mercy on us. He has chosen to have mercy on us. He has chosen to treat us with kindness when we had trampled over his name. He's that kind of a savior. He is mighty to save. That's what Isaiah 63 says. He is unrivaled in power. Nothing can stop him from carrying out whatever his kind, gracious heart wants to do. That is a huge comfort for us. That's what we see in Jesus healing this man. There were plenty of Jewish exorcists at this time. They went about, believe it or not, um, armed with like code words and rituals to try and um, cast out demons from people. No one had helped this man. But Jesus did. He was given up for dead. He was actually, in fact, he was worse than dead. He'd been totally engulfed by hell to the point where when he opened his mouth, it, it wasn't him that was speaking. It was the demons who were speaking. Hell spoke when he tried to. That's how far gone he was. There has never been a more unlikely convert, maybe. But Jesus is the one who brings him back. Look at verse 15 with me. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. What was he like? Sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. This is here to show us that Jesus is able to liberate and restore anyone. And I mean anyone no matter how far gone they are. There is no sin, there is no amount of sinfulness in your life or in your neighbor's life, in your family's life, in whoever's life that you're thinking of that he is not able to liberate and restore. And he delights to do this. This is why he came, to be the fierce divine warrior that we oppressed humans need, 
to be that compassionate liberator that we enslaved humans need. So why, why would you wait? Why would you not call on this, this wonderful God? He promises elsewhere in Scripture over and over and over again that he will answer you when you call on him to free you. He will come and he will free you. If you're someone who's been coming to church for a while, maybe for your whole life actually, and you haven't really got a ball of what Christianity is about, or you're just like, is this really all that important? If you don't understand why Jesus had to die, if you were to die tonight and you were before God and he was to ask you, why, why should I let you into heaven? I own heaven. Why should I let you in here? If you would say something like, I've been a pretty decent person. I'm a member in a church. I've been baptized. I'm all right. I'm all right, God. Then you are still someone who is oppressed and blind, enslaved by Satan. That is your condition. You have to be liberated. You have to be set free or else you're going to remain blind and you're going to keep marching after Satan until one day you face Jesus and Jesus will not be fighting for you anymore. Jesus will be fighting against you in just the same way that Isaiah 63 sounded. That's the future. If you don't take Jesus seriously now, that's the future. But the good news for you right now is that Jesus is the one who is able and you wouldn't believe how willing to save you. He will set you free. He will restore you. He wants to give you life to the full. Now, maybe you feel actually, and I've been here myself, maybe you feel like you've got to the point where you'd say, no, Stuart, actually, you don't know me. You don't know how tight a grip evil has on me. You don't know uh, how deep the effects of sin go into me, my own sin, the sin of others against me. You don't know. There's no hope for me being restored. For whatever reason you've got, I don't need to know it, you're hopeless. Slow down. Take a look at this demoniac again. You've got to hear this. He was gone. There was no desire for Jesus inside him. He hated Jesus. He was against Jesus. He was effectively worse than dead. We're not even told he calls in the name of the Lord. I've just told you to call in the name of the Lord. He doesn't do it. When he tries to speak, the demons speak. His whole soul is bound up with the will of hell. He wants what hell wants. That's how far gone he is. But he was rescued. Not because of anything inside him, but because of the unstoppable love of Jesus. He moves toward us, mighty to save. That's what Isaiah says. This man was instantly the, the full picture of health, spiritually, physically, emotionally. And Jesus is the same today as he was back then. He is at the ready now to help any of us, to restore us in just the way that we need. He knows better than us what we need. So put your hope in him. Ask for his help. Just ask. Even if you are like so dead set against asking for help. You don't want Jesus. He can set you free from that. He did that for me. That's why I chose this passage, because I love it so much. Jesus did that for me, and he can do it for you. That's what he did for this man. It is not a coincidence that if you feel hopeless, you're hearing this passage tonight. So do what Jesus is saying. So Jesus is our liberator who restores us, but okay, we'll address the weird bit now. The way Jesus liberates this man here is a bit strange. Look at verse 12 with me. The demons say to Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. It's, it seems strange at first reading. It's maybe even a little stranger that Jesus actually allows them in the next verse, in verse 13. It's really important for us to notice Jesus grants them permission. They can't do anything without his say-so. 
For all their dominance, they can't move an inch without Jesus allowing them. Every square inch of this universe is under the reign of Jesus. Total sovereignty. That's really important to see from this passage. But they make this strange request. Why did Jesus say yes? It's not just odd, actually. It ends up bothering a whole lot of people. That's the primary reason behind uh, all these people asking Jesus to leave the region. So why did he say yes? I'm not going to bore you with, well, it wouldn't be boring. I'm not going to tell you every reason. There's four, five, six reasons. They're wonderful. They're important. But there's one that I'm going to give you because it's, it's super comforting. It shows us how caring Jesus is for the sinners that he comes to set free. Jesus was giving this poor man that he just freed the most vivid visual assurance that his oppressors were never, ever coming back. That constant 24-7 torture that he'd experienced, that was gone. He did not need to look over his shoulder anymore for the boogeyman. You can imagine as soon as he was healed, the first few seconds afterwards, he's just on the ground and he's like, oh my gosh, what? Oh, I'm, I'm aware that I'm aware of things now. And then he would have expected another onslaught of demonic activity in his own heart. He would have been bracing himself for the only reality that he knew at this point. But instead, he'd have looked up and he'd have seen Jesus smiling down at him. And Jesus would have told him to look over there, look at all those pigs running into the sea. And he would have said this, your enemy is gone for good. They are never, ever coming back. You are free. That's how much the Lord cares for the people that he sets free. He doesn't just do something and then walk off. He really cares that we are calm in our hearts and know that we are totally liberated forever. We are permanently saved from Satan, from sin, and from death even. So where do we see that most clearly? In all the Bible, where do you see that happen most clearly? At the cross, don't we? That's where Jesus wants to lift our eyes to. That's where Jesus wants us to look and see that we have permanently been set free. That's what he wants us to do this evening. Total freedom bought for us by Jesus at the cross, the mightiest act of his his ministry, laying down his life, not fighting back, dying in our place, taking on the infinite weight of God's anger against our sin so that we wouldn't have to. So if you ever feel like you're too much for Jesus, that you're beyond the pale, that you're cut off, that you're alone, that you're isolated, you're hopeless, you just slow down and you remind yourself that Jesus came straight out of heaven and entered straight into the battlefield. He charged in there where the the fighting was the thickest, where the heat wasn't just everything that Satan could do to him, but it was God's infinite anger burning white hot against our evil. And he didn't flinch. He ran straight in there because he, at some point in eternity past, had set his heart on your name to buy back your freedom because he loves you that much. We have an unrivaled God. We have an unrivaled Savior. If you aren't a Christian, you don't have this freedom, but you can have it. Jesus is trigger happy when it comes to freeing people. Jesus loves to save people. He is at the ready to save and all you have to do is ask, no matter how much you feel that opposition inside, all that reticence inside, all that resistance inside, it doesn't matter. It's not going to be a problem for him. All you do is ask and he will free you. 
But to finish really briefly, really, really briefly, I've got a third point for us to take from this passage. Mark moves from his account of uh, Jesus surprisingly allowing Legion what he wanted to rejecting what this new man, this healed man wanted. Look at verses 18 to 20 with me. He begs to be with Jesus. Of course he does. Why would he want to be away from him? But Jesus refuses him. Instead, Jesus has another mission for this new man. Read verse 19 with me because that's our third point, just verse 19. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Tell who? All those locals that want them to leave the area? All, all, all those people who prefer the demons to their liberator? We all tend to love a bit of payback, don't we? Whenever someone's rejected us, we want them to be taught a lesson. We want a bit of payback. Jesus is not spiteful like us. Jesus is showing a really great kindness to this community, that even though they hate him and even though they want him out, he's just a troublemaker for them. He is so filled with a great love that he cannot bring himself to fully separate himself from them. He can't leave them behind fully. So he leaves them this restored man with one mission. Go and be the first missionary to the Gentiles in the whole of the New Testament. A Gentile demoniac, the most unlikely convert you can ever think of, healed, saved, sent to his friends and his neighbors to tell of how much Jesus had done for him. The application to us today from that is exactly the same. Go and do likewise. Go and tell those people or those places that you consider hopeless and beyond the pale, beyond the reach of Jesus. Call on Jesus for those people. They are not beyond his reach or his power. The concrete hope that we've got through Jesus drives hard mission and in hard places and to hard people. That is what we are saved for. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 puts it this way. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you've been liberated from Satan and your sin by Jesus, then you have received the, the, just the most magnificent gift that you ever could have. And now you've got the responsibility to go and tell others. Now you've got to tell people how much Jesus has done for you. And you can do it knowing that no one is beyond his powerful, liberating word. That's a really helpful definition for evangelism, isn't it? As we think of how to reach our neighbors, um, like during turn time and back home, as we try to think of ways to reach those people, even across the road in the Holy Lands that we write off, or that transgender charity that's right next door, who we'd be like, oh, they're never going to want to hear about Jesus. Whoever you're thinking of, tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And he has shown that that works. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so gracious that you sent your son to set us free from our greatest enemies. Father, we all need that freedom. And so we pray to really know it by knowing Jesus. Set us free from our sin and Satan to live forever enjoying you. Help us to always remember your immense and fierce power that you love to use for setting undeserving sinners free. Help us to see 
our dire situation if we don't have the freedom that you give. And Father, we pray this year that you would set many free here in Belfast. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.